Hi everyone, welcome to the Right Angle Podcast. This is the podcast that focuses on the process of design, where each episode I will highlight one exceptional creative individual with unique perspectives and experiences within the world of spatial design through actual conversations about their design principles, philosophy, and process. I want to discover what makes each designer, artillier, and artist unique. I'm your host, Al Liu, an interior designer in New York City. In the world that celebrates influencers, The Right Angle will be a podcast that celebrates real designers who makes the industry what it is, and for listeners to get a glimpse into the true creative mind. This is the first episode of season two of the Right Angle podcast, and I'm very honored to have Pauline Brown, longtime leader in luxury goods and former chairman of LVMH North America, with us here today. Pauline is renowned for acquiring, building, and leading some of the world's most influential brands. In her groundbreaking new book, Aesthetic Intelligence, she shows business people how to harness the power of their own senses to create products and services. That delight their customers and build businesses that last. Her book is based on a course that she designed and taught at Harvard Business School. Pauline began her career as a consultant at Bain, and subsequently held senior executive roles at Estee Lauder, Avon, and the Carlyle Group. She currently is an executive in residence at Columbia Business School and the Henry Crown Fellow at the Aspen Institute. Hi, Pauline. Welcome to the Red Angle Podcast. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, of course.、Um, I'm so happy that you're here today. And you know, as we all know, you wrote a book called Aesthetic Intelligence, which is based on a course you designed and taught at Harvard Business School,、um, and currently at Columbia. So, could you help us understand, you know, in your own words, what is aesthetic?、Um, so. First of all, let me define it in the literal sense,、uh, and people are often surprised when I tell them what aesthetics is not. Aesthetics is not beauty, although it can be beautiful.、Mm-hmm. Aesthetics is not design, although it should be well designed.、Uh, aesthetics comes from the Greek word aesthetikos, which means perception of the senses, and an aesthetic experience is one that lifts the senses. Through any form of excitement and delight,、uh, you think about like an aesthetic experience in a restaurant. Yes, the food will be good, but so will the ambiance, the lighting, the acoustics, the you know the design, the seating, and so forth. And、uh, in the business context, I always think of aesthetics as a proposition that is designed to please, if not all five senses, certainly a combination of them. And a lot of the elements of an aesthetic business are also what I call invisible design, which means people may not be recognizing just how important that aspect of the experience is, but it really is having an impact. It could be in the restaurant example, the cutlery, and does the cutlery work well with the cuisine? Yeah. So that is what aesthetics is. Aesthetic intelligence, which, as you know, is the title of my book. Is, is really a, a skill in people, in order to be able to、uh, decipher great aesthetics, and incorporate it in the business context in a company, in a good, in a in a product line, in a service, in an experience. Yeah, you know, I really appreciate that. You know, you you mentioned this example of a restaurant 
experience that's you know it's not just the food it's like the lighting you know like sometimes it's the sound i think that's some for someone who are in the business world and you really pick up on those things well as you mentioned in the intro i teach a course at columbia and one of the guests in a recent class is a broadway producer mm. uh, a delightful guy who has put on many hits over the years and we were talking to him about the business of broadway but one of the questions i asked him is what could retailers learn from a broadway producer most retailers are no longer so compelling to go in and i'm talking about bricks and mortar retailers and when the movie business first took off many people thought that theater would go away why would anyone pay hundreds or even thousands of dollars to see something live when they could see it for a fraction of the price on a large screen and obviously we still do if the theater is a great experience um, but we do it because it provides an experience that can't be replicated on a screen. His, his answer to my question about what retailers could learn from Broadway producers is the power of lighting. That oh. is, in theater, they use lighting really strategically. And it isn't just where the spotlight is being shined or how bright it is, but it's even the warmth of the lighting or the combination or the way the lighting is moving around the stage. Yeah. All of that comes together to reinforce a really powerful story. Yeah, 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 definitely. And so speaking of aesthetic, so why is aesthetic, you know, so important for any company or a business? And could you explain us your philosophy behind, you know, that and like the, the sense of aesthetic intelligence a little bit more? So there were certain businesses or types of businesses for which aesthetics was always important. So I come from the world of luxury goods. If a, if a handbag isn't special aesthetically there's no reason for anyone to ever buy it it isn't like people are buying it if you just want something that can ha you know that can hold your your wallet and your keys you could use a paper bag um, and that costs you almost nothing so those industries wouldn't exist if aesthetics wasn't ingrained from the beginning and wasn't reinforced and wasn't executed really powerful right. historically most companies didn't need aesthetics if you were an automotive company if you were a household goods company you know, if you were uh, an aviation company, you had other objectives and you, we were living in this industrial era where in order to be successful as a business, you had to grow bigger, you had to achieve economies of scale, you had to be able to do it faster, you know, you wanted to be more global, you wanted to incorporate as much innovation as possible so that you stay one step ahead. And, and, and we took that thought process of what makes big business bigger and lasting longer, we took it as far as is possible. Right. You can't have a computer that costs less than zero, right? And, and it's coming pretty close to zero in, in terms of our you know, ability to put that much microprocessing power in that smallest space for that little money. But that just becomes a race to the bottom. And it's one of the reasons that so many jobs, for example, have been shipped overseas um, versus what used to be the backbone of the American economy. Because at some point, you know, that's not a competitive advantage. Uh, it worked for a hundred years, but it doesn't work going forward. And we live in this era, this is the first time in human history where even the poorest segments of society don't need more stuff. They have enough t-shirt. The poorest segments of society are not, um, are not um, emaciated, are not starving for food, right? We have a, a plentiful, we, they may not be as well nourished, they may not eat as good quality food as wealthier people, but they eat enough food, they're not starving. So the, the important point today in every industry, including the ones I referenced like automotive 
and household goods is how can you sell people things, not just on the basis of their functionality, but on the basis of how it makes them feel. And we know from research that about 85% of the reason a consumer will buy one product over another is how it makes them feel, not this very rational assessment of features and functions and costs and benefits. And yet marketers are still predominantly focused on costs and benefits and features. And so my big push is if you wanna, if you wanna thrive or even just survive going forward, you better start appealing to humans on a human level. Mm-hmm. And why do you think like companies still haven't picked up that yet? Um, so I think they are picking up on the concept of it, but executing it takes a cultural shift that is much harder to make than the theoretic adoption of what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you look at most big companies, and obviously we look to big companies to sort of lead the way, but I think in in, in this stage, if you look at what entrepreneurial companies are doing, they're absolutely reinventing whether it's luggage or vacuum cleaners, it's all coming from the entrepreneurial companies. But the big companies are, are inevitably resistant because it takes a very different training. Uh, because you know, if you look at any Fortune 500 company and you say, where did the CEO come from of the company? You know, by and large, they're engineers, they're finance or economics. Uh, if it's a healthcare company, maybe they came out of biotechnology. Yeah you won't find one CEO in the Fortune 500 who studied graphic arts or or history. And so I think they may appreciate it, you know, on a theoretic level, but to really own it with the same level of accountability that they own the numbers and they own the operational performance is is, is a cultural shift that hasn't yet happened. I think it will happen in part because they're seeing, they're losing share to these entrepreneurial upstarts that are doing exactly what I'm talking about. Right. And so, you know, when you helping build like global brands and help them grow bigger and faster, like, do you have a process to, you know, helping those brands like develop or, or even discover their aesthetic? So um, there are a few different processes, but I always say aesthetics and aesthetic intelligence starts with the individual, not with the company. Companies don't exist. Right? They're, they're concepts that are run by real people that are, uh, are sold and targeted at other real people. So I always try to start with sort of the human component. But I like to, I do what you call a sensory audit, mm-hmm. which is going into the archives. It's much like what you would do if you were a new fashion designer coming into maybe a heritage brand that's been around for generations. Mm-hmm. And you really want to understand before you put your own imprint on that design and on that next collection what you know what sits in the archives what are the codes of the house what did this what what did this brand stand for when it was launched what did the founder believe how has it evolved over time and where did it make missteps because there's a lot of great brands that lost their way um and that's never a good thing the the best brands are ones that build on their heritage and yet still feel modern and relevant uh, and that's a, you know that and that that takes a real appreciation for you know what has come before you yeah and so i i always say let's before you even use your imaginations to what could be let's start with what is and what we've lost and how we can take even things that may have been really powerful at one time it could be a logo it could be a textile it could be uh, a tagline or a, a brand sound and maybe bring it forward 
in an interesting way. Mm-hmm. And could you give us an example? Sure. I mean, one, one that I think was masterfully done is, you know, about 20 to 30 years ago, it was a very dusty old British raincoat company that was known for its trenches called Burberry. And a woman who had been uh, prior, prior to that, the CEO of Saks was hired to be the CEO of Burberry and to revive it. Burberry was a decent sized business, but it wasn't a hot fashion brand. It had never done you know, runway shows. It was just known for that very classic London trench with this plaid, this Haymarket check plaid on the inside. And the genius there was number one, taking that plaid and put and using it in very unexpected ways, like maybe on a bikini that you know Kate Moss would wear, mm-hmm. that all of a sudden redefined. Plaid is not for you know cigar chomping old British, mm. uh, you know Oxford club men. It could really be cool. Um, and they also tied in other things that were happening culturally at the time around uh, what was called Cool Britannica, which was a redefinition of what is England. I mean over the decades, a lot of style came from England, but I think um, the last big wave was probably in the 60s and 70s, you know, where, and then there was a shift to the continent or to New York and to Tokyo. I think that that there was this this movement to make old London feel modern and and chic again, and Burberry kind of played into that. So that would be one example. The challenge for a brand like Burberry is, so now they've taken that Haymarket check as far as they can, and they've gotten very big and they've, you know, are public. So they've got certain accountabilities to their shareholders. How do you take it to the next level? Mm. Many a fashion house that's gotten as, as successful as they have to one level have a very hard time growing off of that base. Right. Um, and to follow up on that. So how do you take an already successful brand to the next level? There are different strategies and they don't all work. One strategy, you could take the Giorgio Armani strategy. Um, so Armani realizes that he can only get so much cachet by having, you know, another um, collection business. Yeah. So they kind of cascade into a much broader array of price points and sub brands, Emporium, so forth. And then they open the, um, the hotels, maybe the restaurants and try to sort of create a lifestyle around it. Got it. Um, again, not, not easy. It doesn't always work. Sometimes the customer doesn't find it very credible that a business that's known for one thing is trying to go into another thing. Um, Another way that brands can do that, and I'll take the example of Vuitton, is they kind of create a segmentation in their business. So the same woman who might buy a Neverfull with a monogram, you know, is not the woman who's going to be buying something off of their runway collection. And they've been able to straddle the challenge of being a very accessible brand, a very big brand, um, and a very, um, I would say, mass-produced brand with a segment that's quite small from a commercial standpoint, but that gives them a lot of editorial command and authority, and that gives them the marketing power that monogram full bag never would. Right, right, right. So I give them a leverage to do something else. Mm -hmm. And... This is might be a little off topic, but like, do you feel like a business have to scale? Well, you know, take a business like a Dom Perignon. It doesn't scale because you can't produce more champagne out of that Maison than they already produce. They're at maximum capacity. There's only so many hectares of land that are growing in mm-hmm. that small region of France, Champagne. 
but they've been around since the 1600s. And the fact that they can command a premium price, that it'll take a very long-term view, I'd say in another 100 years, Dom Perignon will still be around. The problem many brands have, especially when they go public or when they get financial investors involved, is there is this push to grow at all costs. And I'd say the, the mm. sacrifice that you make when you do that is longevity. Oh, okay. If I had a company, um, I would do everything I could to um, refrain from going public. If I really care about my legacy and I can continue to run a healthy business with uh, a longer term and more stable view, such as what the Hermes family has done mm-hmm. for generations, then I think you have to con- continue to control it. And I think you have, a, have to have alignment with all the different um, constituents as to what business you're in and for how long. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's also quite, I don't, I don't know, like it takes someone to have a stand to make that choice, right? It's mm-hmm. not that easy. <laughs> um, I know that you acquired, you know, a lot of brands during your time at, you know, Estee Lauder. Could you give us an example that um, some, a, a beauty brand that's like not as expected that you acquired and that actually do really, really well? The first one that um, the Estee Lauder, the group that worked on, the first acquisition ever, we thought might have been a failure. Didn't know it was going to be such a big success, and that was MAC Cosmetics. Mm. And it was a small business at the time. Uh, it was based up in Canada, in Toronto. Uh, it was founded by three men uh, who came out of the hair and beauty world. They didn't have experience as entrepreneurs, but they had a good vision and a lot of charisma, and they were doing something very different in the market. All the other brands were using very pretty Caucasian models in, you know, lovely floral settings and sort of classic uh, uh, beauty framework. And they did everything in black. And they were the first one, even though they didn't talk about diversity inclusion, if you looked at the makeup artists at their counters, you know, it certainly represented that. And it was uh, a bit jarring in a much more conservative time. What was also interesting about MAC and what we saw, even though it was a very small business, is um, that unlike other edgy brands, mm-hmm. it actually had a lot of heart. It was also the first brand that got in front of the HIV AIDS movement. Nobody else wanted to touch that in the 90s for fear that it might alienate certain people or scare them away. Mm-hmm. And Mac knew who it was. It knew who it was speaking to. Um, and it was very bold in everything it did. So the differentiation in a business, cosmetics, which has very little differentiation. I mean, the, the quality of the wax on a MAC lipstick is not that different than the quality of a wax on a Max Factor lipstick. It's, you don't buy it for the wax. You don't yeah. buy it the red color makes you, you know, your lips more red than the other one. You really, it's about identity and it's about expression and it's about um, a culture that transcends all the way down to the counter. And, um, why I say I didn't think it was going to be successful in those early years, number one, because one of the most important of the three founders, the most charismatic, passed away very suddenly and very unexpectedly. Hmm. All of a sudden, you didn't have their leader. Yeah. And you had the mutiny in the group because they didn't want to be, they always said, we don't want to be lauderized because they were concerned they'd be, you know, was big corporate parent and couldn't do things in the, in the, in the funky entrepreneurial way they had always done things. So there was a lot of dissension and a lot of conflict. Ultimately, that was managed through, and Mac went on to become one of the largest uh, prestige cosmetic companies in the world. It took, you know, two decades to get to that level. 
Um, and I think in the case of Lauder, what helped, and not every acquisition that I worked on had that level of success, but what helped with Lauder was that the company, even though it was a public company, was still family controlled and take a longer view. So even when I worked on the acquisition of Joe Malone, the fragrance brand, it was also very, very small. And I remember my CEO, who was my boss at the time, who was not a family member, would get very frustrated. He'd say, I'm running a multi-billion dollar company and you're wasting my time with a $25 million revenue business. But Leonard Lauder, who was the chairman and part of, you know, and, and the significant uh, shareholder, would say, I'm doing that not so much for you to report to the street next quarter or next year, but 20 years from now, this is the seeds for future growth. And he understood that. And it does often take that level of ownership and, and, and time horizon, you know, long range thinking in order to do the right thing. As yeah. Good. Like yeah, he had a really long vision, not just like immediately. And I actually like, I feel, I mean, I have a, this idea of Estee Lauder actually quite good at give the brand they acquired the control the brand needed because I actually read an interview about the founder of Lilabo, which mm-hmm. Lilabo also acquired by Estee Lauder. And the founder was like, they actually have a lot of freedom to do whatever they want, even though after they got acquired. And so, yeah, I don't know if you acquired that brand when your time. No, that was, it was after my time. But what we've seen in fragrance is in the earlier generation of fragrances, you basically had these high profile fashion designers who'd slap their name, Calvin Klein, Armani, Laura, yeah. uh, Ralph Lauren, um, Donna Karen. It worked up to a point and then started to become just the supermarket, uh, you know, of juice in a bottle. And this next wave, which Lalebo fits in, were real fragrance makers who just had a very strong point of view of, of how to combine different notes and essences and how to package it, how to tell the story. And it just felt a lot more to the marketplace, a lot more authentic, a lot more interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, and that's really been the only area of growth for much of that fragrance segment. Uh, and I think with, with regards to the... The, and I don't, ha- I don't know specifics of Le Labo because it did happen after my time. But I would say one of the things the company knows well is if you don't let the creative founders and the creative teams have a very strong imprint in how they're going to grow this, you really have bought a shell of a company. I mean, what else is the company? It's not like there's anything proprietary in the bottle. It's not like, you know, you can't copy a marketing campaign. Marketing campaigns are copied all the time. But what you can't copy is a soul. And so you have to give these creative teams space mm-hmm. to express that soul. And that is what drives the, the energy of the company and the business. Yeah, definitely. I, you know, like in our current sort of like day and age, I think a lot of our life is surrounded by, you know, the technology, the functionality. Do you feel like there's a sense of people moving away from aesthetic or you, be, or you think because of that people are more like attracted to a brand or product that have a great aesthetic? Um, so I think both. I think the, because we deprive ourselves of sensorial experience because we spend so many hours in front of a screen, mm-hmm. I think our, our, our nature is craving richer experiences, which is why um, people are, are craving international travel and, and exotic destinations, they're cra- that why they um, flock up and wait on long lines to get in great restaurants or, um, you know, 
uh, why I, I think certain brands that really create wonderful store experiences, and there are not too many, you know, that people still keep going in, even though you could buy that product without ever going in the store. But I think people want to be, that are, are, we're so hardwired mm-hmm. as humans that way predates this digital era. At the same time, because we don't, you know, for every hour we spend looking at a phone or looking at a, uh, at a PC screen, we're not doing things that historically would have satisfied that. I think we're a bit numb. So we don't know how important the senses are. And only when a little bit like a plant that is, it needs watering, you know, and when you put the water in and you see it immediately suck it up and come back to life, uh, that that's the reaction I see. But the, the plant becomes hardened because that's survival. Yeah. And earlier you mentioned, you know, aesthetic is really about the delight of our five senses. Mm-hmm. So do you think spatial design can incorporate sort of like aesthetic beyond, you know, the visual? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, I'm working out with one of the major automotive companies right now on helping them think through how to design a car that delights women. Women historically have looked at cars, unlike other categories that they might buy, as vehicles. Men look at it, you know, a bit more as an identifier of who they are. Are they cool and sporty? Are they the are they manly? Women really are very practical on that decision. And one of the reasons I tell them is because the the features that you've been promoting are not the features that excite a woman. But can you imagine if you went in and there were opportunities, for example, to adjust the lighting, maybe when you're not even driving, so that, and there was sort of a mirror set up so that if you had to touch up your makeup, you could do it without having to compromise. Imagine if the the textiles, like what we, we wouldn't, buy a couch for a living room and not think we somehow had to personalize it, but somehow we'll go in a car every day and we'll sit on this vinyl or if we're lucky, you know, and can afford the leather version, we will. But otherwise it's so um, um, sort of um, uh, standardized and there's little touches you can do to make it, make it yours and to walk into that space and to soften the fabrics or to soften the color palettes. Absolutely we can. Um, and uh, and I think that we're just beginning. With regards to room design, which is more what you were talking about, I think um, uh, there are a lot of things I, I, I would point to. I mean, one, when I walk in a space, I don't just think about how it looks. I think it actually about how the flooring feels on my feet. I, um, I like porcelain and I've used it in a number of my own interior projects, but it's actually very hard. It's as hard as cement and therefore, it's not nearly as comforting as say hardwood, which has a bit more absorption. Um, and I, you know, so I, I often think about how do things actually feel? Um, you know, similarly, uh, if I walk in a public space, there are certain spaces that are not designed with in mind that there might be women in high heels, <laughs> you know, these sort of slick marble floors and so forth. Um, so, you know, and the emotional impact of that, even if we learn to just, deal with it, which is what we've done for most of our life, it takes a toll. It's stressful. Um, And it doesn't always cost money to do these other sensorial design elements well. You know, at every price point, you have a lot of choices. And I always say, like, if you're, let's say you run a public school, a public elementary school, you know, you're not going to have money to hire Peter Marino to redo the school. But you're going to probably once a year or every other year, repaint the walls. And why put that coat of 
sort of cold white that makes everyone look sallow and sickly against the fluorescent lighting, well, why not think of colors that are cheerful and conducive to learning and that are inviting to young children? Um, hospitals, the same thing. You're, you know, you're going to have a waiting room, not just for the sick people, but also the distressed people who are caring for the sick people. And why aren't we thinking about how these elements make people feel, not just how they look in an Instagram picture? Mm -hmm. Yes, that's very true. And to follow up on that, is there any example that you can think of? You know, it could be any kind of spatial experiences that you know traditionally are geared more towards functionality purposes, but recently have achieved you know great aesthetic in your opinion. Oh, um, well, what we're seeing, for example, is that if you look at like the hotel industry, it used to be twenty years ago that whether I was going to Ritz Carlton or Marriott or Sheridan that the predictability and the harmonization throughout the hotel was, was what I wanted or what I thought I wanted. And then all of a sudden somebody, and it started with boutique players, said, you know what? It's a lot more inviting to take a hotel, even if it's part of the Marriott Group or part of Hilton, that feels like it's local, that feels like it has touches that I wouldn't find maybe in every other room and certainly not in every other hotel. Mm -hmm. um, and they're little touches, you know, they're not ones that require a wholesale redesign. Um, and, and you see which segment of the hotel industry is growing and which one is shrinking. So, and that's not a luxury phenomenon because yeah. at every price point, I could point to ones that are getting it right and that create a lot of buzz and, and, and almost, uh, become go-to places, whether you're staying overnight or not, because it's your, your home away from home. And all the others that still treat a hotel room as capacity utilization for a traveler. Um, uh, you know, one of the interviews when my book first came out, and I was very happy to get this call, was from somebody who publishes um, a newsletter called Senior Housing News. Mm. Their readership are all assisted living facilities, people who manage assisted living senior homes. And I loved that somehow that connection was made why do people, why do we send people in their last many or a few years of their life essentially a waiting, like almost like a waiting pen for them to die? Why can't they enjoy that space too? It's not just as the hallway wide enough for a wheelchair, but what, what about if the hallway is kind of a pleasure for them to go through? Yeah. Um, and what about the family members that visit them that make their experience so much better? Why does it have to feel if I go visit someone in an old age home, mm -hmm. like I'm at a morgue? And so to answer your question, I, I do see it making its way, at least where there are these green shoots in the markets, but I think we're still in the first or second inning. I think there's so much more we could do and, and it is a lag effect, but when companies do do it right, I can tell you it really moves the needle. They get um, sort of disproportionately rewarded mm -hmm. for the investment. Yeah. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, since you mentioned the hospitality industry earlier, mm -hmm. I am curious, is there a hotel experience that you absolutely love? Oh, yeah. I mean, I've always loved the Amman resorts. I mean, for a lot of reasons. One of which is, to me, it doesn't feel modern. Like the way a Four Seasons approaches high end, where there are these strong markers that it's a Four Seasons, and it's very imposing. If I have the Four Seasons in Bali or I'm the Four Seasons on 57th Street, New York, I still feel I'm, I'm always made aware I'm in a Four Seasons. 
And I love the way the Amon really works with the topography works, you know, they have some elements that carry over and they certainly have a spirit that you feel wherever you are, if you're in Jackson Hole or you're in, in Bali or Phuket, but they really design every one of their spaces with in mind of how it fits in, you know, in with the local uh, and it elevates that still to the highest level of luxury. Uh, I think they also talk about sensuality and, and the appeal of the senses. It isn't just how it looks in, you know, um, a magazine spread. It's, mm -hmm. it's the smell, it's the, it's the way the air is moving in the space. Um, it's just the elegance of the whole, the whole, you know, user experience, so to speak. So I think they do it brilliantly. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. And, you know, Almond Resort really did a good job at, you know, every single location they sort of ever opened it. And I want to bring a conversation back to your experiences in the, you know, beauty and fashion industry. So in your opinion, how can retail spaces bring more aesthetic delight to their customer in this sort of like day and age that, you know, online shopping is so accessible and convenient? Well, and so I now sit on the board of Neiman Marcus. I joined as soon as it emerged from bankruptcy and it's oh, wow. the reinvention stage. Mm -hmm. And I always say if, if Neiman's, if the best Neiman's can do is try to catch up with Net-A-Porter and Farfetch, the game is over. That'd be like Barnes and Noble saying, you know what, we're just going to invest in our online so that we can be a smaller version of Amazon.com. There's something that Amazon.com can never be, which is that third space that I talked about later. Um, and there's something that Net-A-Porter and Farfetch can never be, which is that 3D experience of walking in, you know, much like I, I shared earlier about the theater. You know, I, I tell them you're in the business of entertainment. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, there's two benefits to going into a real store as opposed to just clicking on your computer. One is that your probability of finding what you like is so much higher because a big part of buying clothes or, or trying on shoes is how it feels on your body and how it fits. It's very hard to get that right remotely. And that's why return levels on these other online sites is so high. The second though, which is more of a human thing, it's less of a problem solving, is how exciting is it when you walk in a space and you discover things that you didn't even think you wanted or needed, but somehow caught your attention, even if you didn't buy it. Like when, one of my favorite experiences years ago was going to the bazaars in, um, in Istanbul. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like I needed a turquoise ne necklace or an oriental rug, but the, the, the colors and the spices and the patterns and the cultural experience of being there brought you know, for me, that was like a museum. And I would like it, and it'll take time to get there, but I would like Neiman's to feel a little bit like a cultural museum. You know, I, I always say when I travel, and I traveled a lot, I used to report into Paris, and I was there every month. And, you know, I had operations on the West Coast and the South US and so forth. I don't want to go in any store that I can go within three miles of where I live which is a lot of these luxury stores. Right. I mean, why would I, why would I ever walk in? I, I have one at home. But if the same brand gives me an experience in Miami or in California or in Chicago that opens my eyes and that brings me a little bit closer to that sense of place, I absolutely will go in. So, so there's two types of ways retailers can think about it. If you're a standalone store, you have one like an Ikram in Chicago or Webster in Miami, 
all you really need to do is curate well. Think of yourself like a gallery owner. Mm-hmm. Buy for the local market, whether the local market's a tourist or a resident, and keep it fresh and, and, and fun. But that's kind of easy if you have a good eye and you understand your community. If you have a chain, you know, like Gap, you know, I don't know how you begin to reinvent that because you've got hundreds and hundreds of doors you've got to deal right. with. If every one of them was localized, it would be a mess. So that's really a utility business as far as I'm concerned. And Neiman Marcus, they're big stores, but there are 35 of them. We should be able to get 35 right for their individual markets. Each one of them should be exciting in its own way, like the Amans. Yeah, that's that's such a good point because I think a lot of them, like the hotel uh, hospitality industry, are moving towards this trend of embrace the local culture. But like the retail haven't. That's something retail store can definitely, especially, you know, the mid to luxury range where you do have a chain, but not that crazy amount can embrace. That's such a good point. And I know we talked a lot about how aesthetic intelligence can be implemented to, you know, increase our sense of the light. I also really curious about this course you taught at Harvard Business School and currently at Columbia. Um, so correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm assuming most of the people who went to business school are not the kind of people who have a great sense of taste, or you know at least aware of it. So was it hard for you to have your point across? So um, there's a few ways I can answer that question. The first thing is uh, to my pleasant surprise, every time I taught the course, it's oversubscribed, meaning I can't take in more students than at max. Okay. So I've known from the first time, and it wasn't because I had a good track record as a teacher, I'd never taught before. So they knew nothing other than, you know, my, what my resume looked like and what the general thesis of the course was. And at Harvard, my first year, I had 110 students. And then I said, that's too many. And I did two classes of 55 or so each. I also have, it's around 50 to 60. And so I, I, I tell you, the demand is there. And the other thing that was a pleasant surprise for me, I didn't necessarily think this would play out as such, is the diversity of students who come into the class. I thought it would be a lot of women who maybe looked like me when I was coming out of business school, who wanted to go into marketing, who enjoyed brands, who maybe would apply to work at an Estee Lauder. It wasn't. There were some of them who were that profile. But there were, um, I've had students who worked and or will be working for Google for hedge funds, uh, and private equity, uh, investment banking, it really has run the gamut. So here's where the challenge is. The challenge for me has not been getting students interested in the topic. I think they're instinctively very intrigued and they know instinctively that there's something there. And they know also that if they keep doing what everyone in MBAs have been doing forever, they're probably not gonna have an advantage or an edge because it's everyone else already doing that. So it's, it's different enough that it might potentially give them an edge. What is harder to teach, and it's why I wrote the book, is not this concept of why aesthetics is important and, co- and how companies infuse it in their products or in their experiences. It's how you as an individual can develop your own aesthetic intelligence. Because I always say it starts with the individual. Yep. And there's a lot of people who understand it conceptually, but they haven't yet made the leap as to how they develop their own tastes, where do tastes come from? And I don't let them get away with it when they say, well, I, you know, I, I love good things, but I have no taste. They, you know, they want, if they're 
if they have the means, they want to hire a designer, just do, just make it look nice. I say, no, that's lazy. You don't have to be, you know, Steve Jobs wasn't there designing fonts and wasn't there visiting uh, textile conferences and figuring out what materials would go in the next generation of Mac. But he never let go of the ownership over how it looked and felt. And so my push for them, and it's through a series of exercises that I've introduced and I am continuing to introduce, is go through some very basic processes just to know not what good taste is, but what good your taste is, what feels good to you and why. And, uh, and I, I've shared with you prior to the show, but I also am working on a, um, an online learning platform that's for not just for the MBA students, but for everybody. Because I, in thinking about where, where does one's taste level come from and how can I pull it out of them and how can I get people to refine whatever their taste may be over time? I said, you know, it comes down to some basic steps around awareness and practice. It's about attunement, so you have to be aware of your environment. It's about interpretation, so knowing not just what you're intuiting or, or sensing, but how you feel about it. Which ones did you like? Which ones didn't you? What did it bring to mind? Why? And then it's about uh, curation. So I always use the example, if you were going to make dinner for, you know, for a bunch of friends, you wouldn't start the meal plan by saying, these are my 10 favorite individual ingredients and therefore I'm going to throw them all in one pot. Right. You would come up with a, a narration, like I want to do a certain theme or a certain flavor or a certain um, experience. And you might just use one of those ingredients that, that are on your favorite list. So that's curation. And that's a discipline that people need to go through and they need to be able to make mistakes and, and, and be self-critical and, and refine it. I've, I've never met a, um, a great aesthet who wasn't continually trying to get better and wasn't at times feeling that they had, you know, even the best designers, they'll miss a collection. That's all part of the process. The final step is what I call articulation, which is being able to communicate your ideals so that other people know exactly what you're envisioning. Yes, I think that articulating part is so hard for other people, even sometimes designers, to do. And do you have any suggestions for designers when they're dealing with clients in terms of for designers to get the best reaction from the client or? Yeah, Uh, well, I think first things first, I would tell designers to start thinking of themselves, not just as practitioners, but as teachers. So, and, and the reason being, a lot of people, if, if, if they feel, if, if it's broken down into, you know, bite-sized steps and it's translatable, they want to collaborate, but they're intimidated by the process. And so it's a little bit like if, if I signed up for some advanced calculus class, you know, I haven't taken math in I know, decades, like I'd be so intimidated. I'd say, you know, what do I need to do this for? I just, just if, it, if it's got to be done, just I'd rather pay and outsource the whole thing. But the reality is that this is a very personal process and a, a successful design, particularly residential, but even commercial, but it's one that you're going to live in and it should, it should be your best self. And, and I think if the client doesn't feel that this is, a craft that they can't participate in. Mm. If they feel that there's a, a, a way for them to really uh, work in tandem and have a sense of ownership over the outcome, 
Um, and it, it doesn't have to be in the execution. And obviously there's some people who have more tolerance for, you know, all the minutia and the, the minor decisions that go into it. And other people just want to have imprint on the big decisions. But I think there's probably a level at which if the client isn't owning any of the decisions, mm-hmm. then he or she is wasting their money. And I think it, it will be less satisfying for the, for the designer as well because the designer's working in a vacuum. And, uh, you know, so, so I think communication is the answer, but it isn't necessarily the strategy. The strategy is around sort of being more instructional and figuring out, much like there's a lot of work that you do that's about problem solving. This is problem solving. How do I get at what would really excite this person? And how can I keep them excited and engaged in the process in a way that when it's finished, there's, there's no surprises. And there's this sense that every day they've come home to something that they actually were partner to. Yeah. So it's really the sense of collaboration or bring the client as part of your journey and teach them what you're doing, really include them in the process. Not all clients will want to be involved in the process, but I think for sure, if you can give them the tools to express what their ideals are, you know, I think for some people, even being left to their own devices and going through Architectural Digest or El Decor and coming back with pictures, to me, that's, that's not collaboration. Collaboration may even ha- be having a methodology where you, you know, show certain things and you get certain reactions and you start to sort of really um, sh- sort of hone in on what feels great to this person and why. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. how can we replicate it and translate it to their space? Definitely. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a really good advice. And, you know, about aesthetic intelligence. So what was your path to discover that? And, you know, was this something you're born with or it's something you developed throughout the years? Um, so, first of all, I don't think I was born with gifts in that department. I think I was born with, you know, with a sensitivity um, which was not off the chart sensitivity, but maybe um, a bit more attuned to um, to colors and to sounds a bit more than than average. But I was utterly untrained. You know, uh, I think any exposure I had to art, to culture, to craft was really informal and in passing. It wasn't like I ever went to art school or um, you know ha- participated in, um, in in the production of these things. Um, I think that there were a few epiphanies along the way. Um, one is I was somewhat reluctantly going down this very traditional business path. Um, and, and when I look back on it, you know, so I, I went to the Wharton Business School. My first job out of it was a consulting firm, Bain and Company in Boston, very focused on analytics, as was Wharton. And there was always a part of me that felt um, like, I, I was leaving behind who I am in the service of doing my job as well as I could. And that didn't sit well, you know, and these were very male spaces. They were very white male. There was an archetype where even if you were a black woman, you kind of had to fit into this archetype of the white male, you know, and, and, and the way you talked and to some extent, the way you dressed or presented yourself. And again, that wasn't me. So there was a bit of conflict, but I kind of sat with that conflict. And a lot of people go through their work life and they, always have a bit of conflict and they accept that. I think the turning point for me though, was when I got my first real job post Bain, and I think of it as my first real job at Estee Lauder, 
all of a sudden I realized this is a big business. This is a multi-billion dollar company. And, and it didn't get there by doing any of the things I was so well-trained to do. Mm-hmm. It got there by being incredibly empathetic to the customer who was a woman coming into department stores back in the day, looking for another lipstick or moisturizer. Um, and I think it, it understood sort of the emotionality of what it was selling. And maybe even more than the emotion, the desirability. And how do you tap into people's dreams? And the one thing that is universal, I don't care if someone's an engineer or you know, if they're a fine artist, everyone has dreams. Uh, I don't care if you make $50,000 a year or you make $5 million a year, you have dreams. Um, and people dream about different things, but one of the things I think Este and her son and others at the company in the years after really understood is, is how do we continue to sort of tap into their dreams, whether it's in the case of Estee Lauder, their dream, a woman's dream to be beautiful, mm-hmm. a woman's dream back in the day, and it's, they don't do this anymore because it's not very acceptable, but to look younger, feel younger, uh, more youthful. Um, in the fragrance ads, a lot of them were around how can you be sexier to the opposite sex, right? And, um, and, and, and by the way, they don't, they're not alone in this. A lot of the you know, high-end auto companies are tapping into particularly male dreams. And, uh, and, and I think in order to tap into people's aspirations and their dreams, it takes imagination, it takes sensitivity, it takes empathy, it takes care, it takes an, a focus on details because it's usually not the one big dream that we're satisfying, but it's the little, it comes out in the little ways. If I make a Chanel lipstick that makes women dream, it's not dream with a big D. It's right. the weight of the metal. It's maybe the fact that Chanel flower is engraved in the, in the wax of the, of the lipstick. The little things that really kind of bring it to life and having that attention to detail is very, very important. And, and that I learned really in that first job at Estee Lauder. Mm-hmm. So you are someone who really stood out in the business world because you have the sense of aesthetic and aesthetic intelligence. So do you think in the future, right, is, you know, the sense of understanding aesthetic matter when it comes to being a leader in any business? I hope so. You I hope so. I hope so. I think, so first of all, I think big companies are going to be much slower to adapt because as I said, corporate by nature is institutional and institutional is impersonal. And when I think of aesthetics, it's really about style. And I think a lot of women in particular in big companies have had to repress their style in order to fit in. You know, the, the first question you might ask if you're going on an interview is, is this appropriate? As if being appropriate is the most important thing because being appropriate is sort of being invisible. And, you know, I will say I get it wrong a lot. You know, there are times I see a picture and I say, why the hell did I, you know, match that set of shoes with, you know, with those earrings and whatever, whatever. I get it wrong a lot, but I'm not afraid to keep going and to keep looking at what worked, what didn't work and how can I refine it over time? And by the way, what is my style and my style, you know, should be very different than your style. I always say that, you know, there's only one thing I do better than anyone else, only one thing, and that is to be me, you know, and shame on me if I don't do that well. <laughs> um, and, and, and one of the ways I express me, I'd be me, is through my style. And, uh, and, and so I hope 
that people are not only given permission, but they give themselves permission and maybe even fight a bit harder to be different and in an authentic way, not to be different for different sake. Because in a way, I look at style, not as many people have described it over the years as this sort of superficial, you know, uh, very external oriented manifestation of who people. I look at it as an expression of your values, right? And if, if your style is to be very minimalistic, which is, you know, it's a beautiful style, it's not mine, but it's a, then that's really an expression of somebody who, you know, whose mind may want to work in much cleaner, simpler, more streamlined ways. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what gives that person comfort. And if your style is very minimalistic and you're interviewing in an office that looks like the inside of a genie bottle, you're probably in the wrong place. And for you to dress like, you know, like you're coming out of Morocco, if your style is, is minimalistic, you're also being disingenuous. So I would say like the way I look at it is in a way, if, if, if I can express who I am and it works in the environment and we're mm. kind of together coming alive, that that's really the best way to, to, to approach your work. It's the best way you'll get the best results and the best collaboration. And I don't think people are, most people are nearly comfortable with that just yet. I hope so. I think it'll be particularly liberating for women if we can get there. Yeah, that's so true. Um, You know, like speaking of like style or like taste, do you think you can teach taste? So um, I always say not everyone comes in the world with the same level of taste. There are people, Mm -hmm. you know, I could take cooking lessons every day for the next 10 years and I will never be as fine a chef as Daniel Balloon or Ellen Duquesne, right? There are people who just have a gift. Mm-hmm. Um, I can tell you with 100% confidence that everybody can get better than where they are. Okay. And the way I look at it is, I'll give you two analogies. One is, so think about um, sports. If I told you I wanna be in better shape, I wanna be healthier, and I moderated my diet, I started working out regularly and I lived, you know, I slept well and I did all the things that, that are recommended. I may never be an Olympic athlete. In fact, I know I wouldn't be, <laughs> but I can tell you with great confidence that in three or six months after doing that consistently, I would be more fit and more energized and healthier than I was three or six months ago. So the first thing I say is you've you got to think of your aesthetic intelligence or your taste as a muscle that needs to be exercised and it needs to, to be worked on in a lot of little ways constantly. And if you don't, by the way, even if you have great taste, you can atrophy. The other point I'll make is I'll give you a real world example. Um, I bet you've never met in your life a five-year-old child who um, had the capabilities of a sommelier. Mm. In fact, it's if impossible. You, no. impossible. If you introduce even a taste of the finest wine to a five or 10-year-old child, they will you know, gag, right? Yeah. Because wine is not something children enjoy. Yeah. They're, now, not everybody is capable of becoming a masterful winemaker. That takes a whole other level of discipline and experience. But I would say the fact that we, over the years, and the more exposure you have and the more conscious you are as you're trying out different things, you certainly can cultivate uh, an appreciation. And it doesn't take 30 years to do it. You know, it takes time, but not, not forever. So, you know, I would say everything 
you know, it really starts with those basic practices about attunement, about interpretation, about just being aware. And we live in a world where we're kind of encouraged to block because to be successful, we think, is to be smart. And I always say, you know, IQ is good up to a point, but then after a certain point is probably diminishing return. And EQ is good up to a point, but it doesn't always explain great business success. But you take like the Steve Jobs example, he had very low EQ. He was okay on IQ, but probably not as high as, uh, as Albert Einstein. But his AQ, mm-hmm. stellar, was really, 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 really well-developed. That was his competitive advantage. Yeah. Yeah, that's actually very true. And, you know, we talked a lot about your past experiences. And I'm wondering what's next for you. Is there, you know, any exciting projects you are currently working on right now? So, first of all, I started with the course, which in Harvard and now Columbia. And my one frustration with the course was that for all my effort, I was getting, you know, 50 or 100 students. And I always said, like, this is a big idea. And how can I bring it to more people? So then I wrote the book. And the book, you know, obviously reached many thousands of people because books reach them. But the problem with the book is it puts the reader in a very passive role. And then I said, how can I now take the best of the course, which is actually the interaction and the development, with the best of the book, which was scaling? And that led me to the online platform, which I'm in the final throes of of building. And my goal with the platform, I'm starting with this foundational course that's for anybody who is interested in the topic. But my mid to long-term goal is to have uh, follow-on courses that go very deep with uh, very specific uh, interest areas. So for example, maybe it's AQ for technologists, AQ for healthcare workers. Um, I wanna do another one called Train the Trainer, which would work with people who are very developed aesthetic intelligence, who wanna work with clients directly on theirs. And I come up with tools and methodologies so that they can actually advise and be certified. So I feel like like teaching and, and, and this kind of world of, of education is where I want to build, because this is, to me, a movement. Yep. It's a way of thinking that has never found its way formally in the wide world of business. And I think the timing is right. I wrote the book well before I could even have envisioned something like COVID. And the irony is, I think COVID has accelerated many of the future forecast that I put in the book and, and the, the, the way that I saw the world evolving and what business world was doing wrong. I think it has, it has accelerated and amplified these points. So I think that this is going to provide a platform that I can work off of for many years to come. Yeah, that's very exciting. So, you know, for people who are interested in how can they, you know, join this platform and when they go live? So um, I have a website uh, that was originally built for the book purposes, it's aestheticintelligence.com. And if someone's interested in learning more uh, and and goes on, put in your email and within about a month, I'll be sending out an announcement uh, as well as a special offer for people who wanna be in the inaugural cohort of this foundation course. So that should be ready uh, come spring. That's great. And I do have one last question, which I always ask every single guest who comes to the show. Um, looking back with their uh, moment or factors in your life that, that make you to be where you are right now, that's because of a chance or luck. Interesting. And I think my lucky break uh, was not one big power move. 
I think that there were a lot of little things that happened at the right time. But when I look back, I think, you know, if there's anything I would point to that I was, I was lucky to just come from this really long line of strong women, some of whom were literally survivors. Both my grandmothers were Holocaust survivors. Mm -hmm. And I just feel that the luck of their influence, uh, which a lot of people don't, you know, don't have nearly as much proximity to their grandparents as as I did, or at least my two grandmothers. Mm. And um, and it really instilled in me at a young age that uh, I had to forge my way because the world was not going to make it easy, particularly when you have the kind of backdrop that these women had. And that I, if I was going to be successful, I'd have to fight for it. So I developed a fight. I didn't assume anything ever. I still don't assume anything. You know, I never assume that just based on a resume or a connection that anything will happen if I don't really fight for it. Um, And this idea that, you know, no matter what setbacks happen, you just keep moving forward. You just keep moving. Because uh, I've seen a lot of men and women, but particularly women, kind of give up at some point. There's a lot of talent sitting on the sidelines. And, uh, and I just say, you know, sometimes this game is about, it's about momentum and it's about resilience and it's just about move, keep moving, just keep moving. Be willing to move in the wrong direction as long as you're moving. Yeah, I love that. Like a too strong female figure. I think especially like back in the day, that's quite rare to have such strong female figure in your Yeah, and in it wasn't always pleasant, right? by the way. These were <laughs> <laughs> you know, if I put the fork in the wrong hand, my God, but their force of, of nature and their, um, you know, their strength mm-hmm. lives on through me, you know, uh, on my better mm-hmm. days. Yeah, I love that. And, you know, in the end, I always ask my guests uh, some quick questions. Yep. Since you are the expert on aesthetic, I want to ask you, you know, what are some of the brands, in your opinion, have great aesthetics? in some of the categories below. So the first one is beauty. Um, You know what? I'm loving what Tom Ford has done on beauty. It's elegant. It's well edited. Most of the brands I find are just the the assortment is too wide. Um, I think it's texturally exciting. It fits within the brand without becoming a cliche. It's one of my favorites of the more modern brands. Mm -hmm. And the second one is hotel. And I know you mentioned Almond before, but is there any other brand that you think have great aesthetic? I was going to say earlier, because I like the design of the Bulgari hotels. I like the design very much, but I don't like the experience of them as much as the design. So I'm going to sort of say if I were looking at a, um, an architectural digest spread, I would give them high marks as a guest at the hotel. I wouldn't give them as high marks. You know, beyond that, I'm a big believer in going to Airbnb and doing villas and being home. I love that. Those are my, my best vacations have generally not been in, in hotels. Interesting. It's been in, in spaces that really are, are lived in properly. Yeah. Okay. So the third category is a household product or brand. Smeg. Love it. It's just so retro. It's so cute. I always wanted one. It's so cute, yeah. Um, that you know, it's it's an old Italian brand. Could look clunky and could look dated, and yet it feels modern and fun, and it has personality. It's cheerful. 
Yeah. I love Smeg. Yeah, I love that too. Amazing. And the last one is, what is an app that you think have great aesthetic? Mm, let's see. I'm going to look in my phone now and see which one stands out. You know what I enjoy a lot? Pantone. They have an app. If you see a color, you hold your phone up to it and it color matches. And you can also put images and, do, and you can create palettes. Um, oh. I like it a lot. Oh, that's so it's interesting. I will have to download that. So, yeah. Well, well, thank you so much. This was so much fun chatting with you. Thank you so much. It's really good to get to know you. Yeah. And thank you so much for, you know, taking time. And I think our listener would really love what you have to say and really learn a lot from you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, let's stay in touch. And I wish you all the best. Um, And I think big things await you uh, on the design front. I'm curious to see some of your, your portfolio. Thanks for listening to the Red Angle Podcast. If you like this episode, subscribe and review us on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you listen. You can stay connected with us through Instagram at the Red Angle Podcast, or reach out to me personally at Elo Design. I linked everything about my guests in the show notes, so please go check it out. Thanks again for listening, and see you guys next Wednesday.